Well, good morning, Northside Church. It's good to see everybody here on site, as well as those who are joining us online. For any I haven't met, my name is Bill Birch. I'm one of the pastors here. And it is good to gather and worship together as we are continuing our fall worship series that is entitled Fixer Upper, Welcome Home. There's a place for all of us at Northside Church to know and grow and go, but we realize that it is a fixer-upper project, and there's a lot left to be done. And today's sermon is entitled, Four Sides Brick. We are focusing upon the two Old Testament books of Ezra and Nehemiah. The two-volume set tells about the return of Israel, of the Jews, from Babylonian captivity back to Jerusalem. And over the past weeks, we've heard the story of, first of all, Zerubbabel, who rebuilt the altar and the temple. Then he was followed by Ezra, who led a national revival. Today, we're coming to focus on Nehemiah, who rebuilt the gates and walls of Jerusalem. Our scripture lesson comes from Nehemiah chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. Listen closely for God's word. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We've acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me, and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Well, they are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today, by granting him favor in the presence of this man, I was cupbearer to the king. Amen. Nehemiah was cupbearer to King Artaxerxes of Persia. In a time of deadly political intrigue, this trusted aide tasted the food and drink of the king for poison. This was real Game of Thrones stuff. And then one day, a group of Jews returned from Jerusalem and reported to Nehemiah. Decades after the Babylonian armies had destroyed Jerusalem, the city walls were still in ruin. 
And when Nehemiah, this man of God, heard that news, something inside of him broke. And he spent days in mourning, fasting, and prayer. And finally, emboldened by God's Spirit, he approached King Artaxerxes with the request to return back to Jerusalem and rebuild its fortifications. The king not only agreed to the request, he also provided timber for the project and soldiers for the journey. And that 900 trip back took months. And then Nehemiah saw firsthand what was to be done. Under the cover of darkness, he and a small group went and surveyed the gates and the walls. And then he gathered the leadership of the Jews about him. And he said, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burnt by fire. Let us rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. In the shadow of the burnt gates and the shattered walls, Nehemiah's words must have sounded like a foolhardy dream. But the faithful said, let us start rebuilding. And so the good work began. We gather together today as God's people, and we have much in common with Nehemiah and company. We have endured 18 months of captivity during the pandemic, clutching our fear and our grief close to us. A simple virus has burnt down the gates of safety and the walls of normalcy. And it feels as if nothing will ever be the same again. During the pandemic, there have been a number of phrases that have become popularized. Phrases like unprecedented times, shelter in place, contact tracing, essential workers. One of my favorites is an oxymoron that combines two contradictory terms, new and normal. Those are opposites, people. And yet, after 18 months, we're trying to figure out what will the new normal look like when so much in life and in this world has been irrevocably lost. Ecclesiastes 3 verse 1 recognizes there's a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven. And we have endured a time of, of ruin, of grief, of death. And we anticipate and long for a season of rebuilding, of rejoicing, and of life. In the shadow of burnt gates and broken walls, the call to rebuild seems like a foolhardy dream and yet the faithful reply, let us start rebuilding. Now the task that was facing Nehemiah must have felt overwhelming. All of the walls and gates of Jerusalem had been destroyed. And if you looked at the entirety of the project, you could have just not even started. But Nehemiah did what every person does when faced with a great task. He took it one step at a time. Timber by timber, brick by brick, stone by stone, Scripture records how the gates and the walls were restored. And what is striking about the narrative 
is that most that were involved had no experience and no expertise in construction. The building crew included priests, noblemen, merchants, goldsmiths, peasants, and ordinary people. It began with Eliashib, who was the high priest, and he gathered his fellow priests together, and they first rebuilt the sheep gate and the walls adjoining it. Then another group called the men of Jericho built another section next to that. And there was a man named Zakur, the son of Emery, who built another section. And every family who lived in Jerusalem took it upon themselves to work on the wall in front of their home. And there were challenges during the reconstruction. The rulers in the surrounding area did not want to see Jerusalem refortified. They threatened Nehemiah and the people that they would tear down the walls and kill the people. And I love Nehemiah because he was a pragmatic sort of spiritual leader. He prayed to God and he formed a self-defense force. Half the people worked, half the people kept watch. And when they went to work on the walls, they carried a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other. And miraculously... The project was completed in 52 days. Divine inspiration combined with human perspiration made the dream become a reality. Let me say again, we share things in common with Nehemiah and company because the church of Jesus Christ is constantly in the process of rebuilding It is an ongoing construction project. It began with Jesus and the disciples, and it has continued through every generation. And the only thing that keeps the church from dying is every generation doing its part in its time and in its place. First Peter wrote to the church and said, As we come to Jesus the living stone rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, You also, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And when we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, the task seems overwhelming, but we accomplish it step by step. Timber by timber, brick by brick, stone by stone, and the work is done. And just as in Nehemiah's time, there are forces that oppose the church today. Thankfully, we live in a time and in a country where we don't have to worry about foreign rulers about us inciting their people to violence. But there are dangerous temptations that are much subtler There's the seduction of worldly wealth. There's the abundance of leisure time and how we choose to spend it. There's the addiction of endless entertainment where we're constantly binging on more. There's fast-paced, over-scheduled calendars. We love to tell one another how busy we are, and it gives an illusion of meaning and a purpose There is the American idol of sports for children, youth, and adults. 
and the inertia of new habits formed over the past 18 months that if we are not mindful will continue to guide and direct our lives moving forward into the future. When I first began contemplating this series, there was one image that inspired my imagination. And it is this moment in Nehemiah when they begin the work and every family in the city takes responsibility for the wall in front of their home. Because a fortified city with one section undone is useless. You've got to have four sides brick, four sides stone, four sides timber. And it is a reminder that every one of us has a part to play as individuals and as a family and as a community of faith. If we don't do it, there is an essential part of God's work that will not get done. And I invite you to prayerfully and thoughtfully consider the following questions with me. What if every Christian disciple... And every church member was just like me or was just like you. How many people would be teaching our children at 1010 Sunday School after worship today? How many chaperones would volunteer to work with our youth in Metropolitan Atlanta Project or go on their retreats? How many greeters would welcome people to worship at the church every Sunday? How many folk would be going on our emergency response team to Louisiana this coming week? How many members would sing during worship? I mean, y'all begged us to sing for 18 months, so don't hold back now. How many guides would lead and direct our congregation? How many parents would bring their children to church? How many of us would come to worship and to Sunday school on a weekly basis? How many people would tithe of their income in order to support the church's mission and ministry? How many evangelists would share the good news of Christ with others? And here clearly, none of us can do everything. But all of us can do something and it requires each one of us to tend to the wall in front of our lives and in front of our own homes. During the Summer Olympics this past week, there was a striking commercial which highlighted both amateur and professional athletes. And at the end, a young woman looked into the camera and said, you don't have to be amazing to start, but you have to start to be amazing where is God calling us to start today in our lives and in our families' lives? Another part of the story that is striking is that Nehemiah is an intriguing character. Yes, he was an, an important official, if you call tasting the king's drink and food for poison important, in King Artaxerxes' court. But he was a Jew in exile. He had been born there. He had never walked the streets of Jerusalem. He had never sacrificed at the altar. He had never worshipped at the temple. He was not a king. He was not a priest. He was not a prophet. But when he heard about the city of Jerusalem state, he was devastated. 
and driven to his knees and then to his feet to do something. And God did extraordinary things with an ordinary man who was willing to make himself available and to just show up. Three and a half years ago during Lent, I did a, a sermon series that was entitled Spring Training, and he used imagery of baseball as we considered the gospel. And there was a story I shared in one of the sermons that I wanted to revisit today. Even the most ardent baseball fans probably will not recognize the name of Wally Pipp. Pipp played for the New York Yankees for 11 seasons starting in 1915. And the first baseman was a gifted athlete. He batted over 300 several times, had great defensive play, and he helped the Yankees win three championships. Then in his 11th season in 1925, he had a bad headache and missed one game. And then the next day in batting practice, he got hit in the head with a baseball. And so his absence got extended And so a young, unknown kid took his place named Lou Gehrig. And Pip never started for the Yankees again. Lou Gehrig became the iron horse of Major League Baseball, playing 2,130 consecutive games. He had a lifetime batting average of 340, with 493 home runs and 23 grand slams. He played in 35 World Series games with a 360 batting average. And he was a man that played for the love of the game. And you can throw all the rest of his statistics aside. The one that impresses me most is 2,130 consecutive games played. He played when he felt like it. He played when he didn't. He played with a broken thumb, a broken toe, muscle spasms, and chronic back pain. Gehrig understood you show up and something happens when you just show up. And that runs counter to our culture's teaching. There's a myth out there that says you shouldn't do anything you don't feel like doing. You should only do the things that you feel like when the reality is actually the truth. Some of the most important things in life get done when we just show up even when we don't feel like doing so. I recall when I first started the ministry, in my first year or two, one of the temptations I really struggled with was a procrastination. Because when you set your own schedule, it's real easy to put off to tomorrow what you don't want to do today. And I discovered pretty quickly that's a great way to get absolutely nothing done. I experienced that when I started writing this sermon. I sat down on a Monday morning about 7 o'clock. Four hours later, I had three paragraphs I had rewritten multiple times. And if it had been decades ago when I would started, I would have shoved the whole mess off the desk and would have thought about it tomorrow. But I've learned you keep pushing forward. You keep trying even when it feels like you're not making any progress or traction. And the result, well, it's, it's the wonderful sermon you're getting to hear today. We just show up. Sometimes prayer seems meaningless and lifeless. It's dead and void as we go through a spiritual desert and we feel like we're saying our prayers by rote. They go to the ceiling, they come back down. It doesn't seem like anyone's listening or answering. You show up and pray anyway. Sometimes Bible study 
seems irrelevant. I can't figure out how God's word applies to my world. And maybe our Bibles have gathered dust on some shelf in the corner of a room. Show up and study the Bible anyway. Sometimes we come to worship and we don't like the music. And the sermon is boring and too long and the place is filled with hypocrites and the room is too hot or it's too cold. You show up and worship anyway. There are moments in marriage where you have highs and you have lows, you have ups and you have downs, you have good times and you have bad times. And I tell newlyweds, there will come a day when you will look at that other person and go, when are they going home? Because I don't feel in love at this moment. You show up and treat your spouse in love anyway. Parenthood is 24-7, 365. And you've heard me say before, and you will again, when they hand you that baby, they don't tell you that's a lifetime sentence. You don't ever quit being a parent. And there is joy and there is sorrow and there are days you want to give up. You show up and you be a parent anyway. And something amazing happens with people who just show up. Good things happen. Prayer becomes revitalized. Worship becomes inspiring. Bible study becomes relevant. Marriages are restored. Parents find another day in them to care for their children. We are called to just show up for the kingdom of God. And timber by timber and brick by brick and stone by stone, the work is done as we make ourselves available to God. The church is an ongoing renovation project. Thanks be to God, it is not DIY. We don't do it ourselves. We are not alone. And the foundation is solid and the bones are good. You don't have to be amazing to start. But you have to start to be amazing. And there's a wall in front of us that needs to be rebuilt. Sometimes just showing up. It's enough. Let us pray. Gracious and almighty God, we thank you for your presence in our lives, even when we don't think you're anywhere around. We offer ourselves up and pray the prayer that thy kingdom come and thy will might be done on earth, in our lives, in our families, in our church, as it is in heaven. Grant us your strength and your grace to just show up, to make ourselves available, and then to watch as you take ordinary people and do extraordinary things in and through our lives. It's in Christ's name we pray it. Amen. Amen.